0: Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The court recently decided West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency. That case questions the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions and to help us understand the implications of the decision for combating climate change and for the future of the administrative state, we are joined by two of America's leading experts on environmental law and the administrative state. They were here to recap oral arguments in the case, and it's wonderful to welcome them back to the show. Jonathan Adler is the inaugural Johann Verhey Memorial Professor of Law and founding director of the Coleman P. Burke Center for Environmental Law at the Case Western Reserve University School of Law. His most recent book is Marijuana Federalism, Uncle Sam and Mary Jane, and he's a regular contributor to the Vala Conspiracy. Jonathan, welcome back to We the People. Great to be here. And Lisa Heinterling is the Justice William J. Brennan, Jr. Professor of Law at the Georgetown University Law Center. Among other books, she's written a casebook called Environmental Law and Policy, Nature, Law, and Society. She was also the lead author of the winning briefs in Massachusetts versus EPA, in which the court held that the Clean Air Act gives the EPA authority to regulate greenhouse gases. Lisa, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Happy to be here. Jonathan, what did the court hold in West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency, and what was the basis for the holding? So in West Virginia versus
1: EPA, the Supreme Court held that Section 111 of the Clean Air Act does not authorize the Environmental Protection Agency uh, to adopt regulations controlling greenhouse gas emissions from power plants that are based on the potential for generation shifting within the power sector. So to put it another way, uh, the court held that the EPA could not go beyond the adoption of traditional pollution control measures At power plants as a way of limiting greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector and therefore could not do the sort of thing that the Obama administration had proposed in the Clean Power Plan, which is to encourage utilities to switch the sources of generation, to use coal-fired power plants less and in exchange use natural gas and perhaps even wind and solar facilities more as a way of supplying electricity. And the basis for this conclusion uh, was that the court concluded this was a, a major or, or extraordinary shift in the way EPA was exercising its regulatory authority, and that such a shift uh, has to be grounded in the statute. Uh, that's a, that sort of major question about whether or not the EPA could make that sort of shift is something that has to be controlled by Congress and not something that an agency can do on its own.
0: Lisa, how would you characterize what the court held and why it held it?
1: I think the
2: major uh, lesson from this case is that the Supreme Court is going to be very aggressive about policing what it now calls the major questions doctrine. And that this uh, decision will have an effect not just on EPA and not just on the Clean Air Act, but on uh, any federal statute that tasks an agency with dealing with one of our um, important problems.
0: Jonathan, let us dig into the major questions doctrine. Uh, What is it? Um, How did Chief Justice Roberts apply it? And what are its implications? So so the basic
1: idea behind the major questions doctrine is that when Congress writes a statute that delegates power to an administrative agency, we all understand that that statute is going to be in some respects incomplete or not entirely clear. It's not going to answer every possible question or give perfect direction to the agency about how to exercise its authority. And we understand that the agency will necessarily have to fill in the details, the way uh, any agent would when given responsibilities and authority uh, by a principal. But that when an agency wants to do something that is particularly significant, uh, that then we expect some clear indication that the agency can do that. That that is the, the, the idea of a major question. Uh, it is based in the idea that when Congress delegates power, it's going to identify the high points. It's going to identify the most significant things it expects the agency to do and not leave those things to the agency's discretion. In terms of how that manifests itself in a case like this, and perhaps in some other recent cases like the OSHA case involving um, the vaccination or test requirement that the Occupational Safety and Health Administration uh, had adopted, the court seems particularly concerned by what I would characterize as pouring new wine out of old bottles. That when you have a statute that was written decades ago, focused on a particular set of problems and that authorized a particular set of tools. The court is very suspicious of the agency at a later date deciding that that statute also entailed or also provided a different set of tools that are tailored or well addressed to contemporary problems that Congress was not focused on at the time it enacted the statute and perhaps was not even aware of. And so I think if you look at the way the the case was written and what came up with oral argument, that concern about the repurposing of statutes or the redirecting of statutes is doing a lot of work in the way the court understands what is a major question that requires Clear congressional authorization.
0: Lisa, the Trump EPA itself had concluded that the decision to regulate generation shifting emissions itself was a major question. And for that reason, it wanted to reverse the Obama rule. And the court agreed that this is a major questions case. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts said that. Given the circumstances, there's every reason to hesitate before concluding that Congress meant to confer on the EPA the authority it claims. How big a deal is it that the court has embraced this meaning of the major questions doctrine, and what are its contours?
2: Well, I think it's a huge deal. As I said, it applies well beyond EPA and the Clean Air Act. Uh, It's also uh, uh, a really... I know we're all talking about EPA and administrative agencies, and that's certainly the rhetoric of the Supreme Court is that these administrative agencies have too much power. But what the court really has done has struck at Congress's power. So Congress now, when it enacts statutes, and especially if it enacts important statutes, is going to have to think about, is it looking at a problem that the conservative justices on the Supreme Court think is major? And that is a very big intrusion on congressional power, um, partly because the test is so subjective and amorphous that the court says that, um, that a plausible textual basis foreign agencies' assertion of power isn't enough, so that a plausible textual basis um, written into law by Congress is not enough. Congress needs to be clearer, especially on hard problems. It's often hard to be clear, not only to get to a compromise that everybody can agree on, but also to empower agencies to address problems that Congress doesn't fully understand in the moment. But it wants the government to be able to take on those problems in the absence of fresh congressional authorization. And here I think we get to a real, a real problem with this kind of test. Everything depends on how one frames the problem being considered. If one views EPA's rule on um, power plants under the Clean Air Act as a rule about trying to find the best way, the best system for reducing carbon pollution from power plants, That is well within EPA's authority. That is not not something that EPA has not done. That is what EPA does. If one views it as restructuring the electric industry, then the court can say, well, this is a major question. This isn't within the warehouse. Nothing within the major questions doctrine itself tells us how to frame those problems. And so that going forward, there will be a tremendous amount of uncertainty with Congress in thinking about how to frame legislation now, with the agency in thinking what's lawful, and then in the courts trying to figure out which framing do they take? Do they take the one that the agency itself offers about what it's doing, or does it, do they take the framing offered by litigants after the statute is passed and after the rule is imposed. And here, I'll just say there's something quite striking about the way the majority opinion goes about its work in this case, which is to say they cite congressional testimony from the prior EPA administrator in the Obama administration. They cite environmentalists' press releases about the Clean Power Plan. The concurrence by Justice Gorsuch cites a White House fact sheet about the Clean Power Plan. And what do they cite these for? They cite these in service of the idea that indeed the Clean Power Plan answered a major question. Right. So that it's not only the framing of the question that is highly malleable and suggestive, but then it's also the proof that it's a major question can go well outside the administrative record, well outside anything we would usually rely on in an administrative review uh, proceeding and say, if you describe this rule in ways that seem to make it, you know, a sort of bigger deal than maybe your, um, your formal rulemaking documents suggest we're going to use that against you in, um, determining whether your role is lawful.
0: Uh, Jonathan, Justice Gorsuch had three factors that the court might use for deciding whether or not a major question exists. What were his factors and, and what's your response to Lisa's claim that the major questions doctrine as adopted by the court is so malleable that it dramatically constrains Congress's authority? Sure. Well, um, Uh, We'll start with with Justice Gorsuch. He wrote a a
1: concurrence um, joined only by Justice Alito um, that uh, didn't focus much on the statute but focused more on the idea of the major questions doctrine and in particular focused on the idea that the major questions doctrine uh, operates as a quasi-constitutional clear statement rule that is designed to prevent interpreting a statute in a way that would create constitutional problems. And for Justice Gorsuch, the constitutional problem that he is worried about uh, is the non-delegation doctrine, the idea that there is a constitutional limit on how much power Congress may delegate to an agency. Um, Justice Gorsuch has previously said that he thinks um, there is such a constitutional constraint on Congress uh, and that the court should enforce it. And so I think that's important to understand what is different about his concurrence than the majority. And then in identifying when this sort of clear statement rule should apply, he suggests um, that if it's a question of great political significance, or if it's a question um, that uh, involves an agency seeking to regulate a significant portion of the American economy, um, or if it involves an agency intruding into an area or a domain that is traditionally the province of state law, that those are all indications that you may have a major question. And and in his view, and I, and I think fairly the, the rule here could certainly be be characterized in that way, how to deal with the problem of climate change is certainly a question of, of deep political significance, even if members of Congress don't engage uh, with it as much as perhaps they should. Uh, it, certainly a, a rule that is based on um, utilities changing the mix of fuel and the sources of power that they use um, is is uh, taking a more significant degree of control uh, over economic decisions than the imposition of source-specific controls would. And then uh, the regulation of utilities and figuring out where where power is going to be produced and how and so on is something that is traditionally regulated at the state level. So those are the things that Gorsuch identifies, um, but at a fairly broad level of, of generality, um... Getting to your second question, and this is an area where I think Lisa and I might agree a little bit. Um, I think it is fair to say that the that the majority, like the concurrence, jumps to the major question, idea, before digging in more deeply into the statutory text. Um, And I I think that's significant. It's not the way I would have written the opinion for a variety of reasons. Um, And it, it it raises some questions because if the major questions doctrine is a canon of construction, if it's a, a, a rule of thumb that courts are supposed to use when interpreting statutes that delegate powers to agencies, we normally think of canons of construction as kind of com- of that sort like to say the rule of lenity, coming in at the end. We first dig into the statute. We first try and get a clear sense of what the statute is doing. And then we realize that there are some substantive canons of construction that serve as tiebreakers or or that put a little bit of weight on the scale at the end, favoring certain sorts of results. That's not what the Chief Justice does, right? He very early in the opinion just announces this is a major questions doctrine, and then only engages in, in statutory interpretation Insofar as is necessary to kind of reaffirm and apply what he has announced, it doesn't change the outcome of the case, Um, and 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 I think as 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 should be clear, I think the outcome of the case is 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 legally defensible. Uh, What it does do, though, is it does give lower courts less guidance because. It suggests that if you can convince a court at the front end of litigation that something is a major question, you have suddenly shifted the battleground against the agency. Um, and whereas had had the chief justice written the opinion, kind of I guess in reverse, first digging into the statute and then using major questions as as the exclamation point lower courts would have gotten the signal that they first have to dig into the statute. And a lot of possibilities will be constrained or hemmed off by that. Um, I don't know why the chief justice decided to, to write the opinion that way, but I think I think that's an important aspect of what he did that I think will um, take some time. It will take us some time to figure out how lower courts are interpreting that because it, it results in a in, in less clear guidance for lower courts than we might otherwise have had.
0: Uh, Lisa, do you agree with Jonathan or not that it's a big deal that the Chief Justice uh, asked courts first to engage in the major questions inquiry before digging into the statutory text? And, and help us understand more broadly how, how big a change in the law this is. The, the Chief Justice says this is rooted in, in cases like the Brown and Williamson case from 2000, and that he's merely applying a well-established body of law known as the major questions doctrine. But uh, do you agree, or is he in fact uh, applying the major questions doctrine in a new way that will constrain Congress's authority more than it had been before.
2: Yeah, I agree that this is, uh, it's a big deal that the Chief Justice approaches this by asking first, is this a major question? If it is, essentially he puts the burden on the agency or effectively Congress to show a clear enough expression to satisfy him that it gets over the major question hurdle. Right so, so that from the beginning, there's this burden to show clarity, in addition, I also I agree with Jonathan that this is going to be really important in the lower courts, in the sense that we have a lot of judges, and i'll say conservative judges right now who have been doing a lot of quite uh, aggressive uh, things in uh, reviewing agencies' actions, and I think that this gives them a such a nice, easy. All purpose way of trimming statutes without really looking at them. Get in, see a major question, get out, say it's not clear enough. It's also perfectly made for the Supreme Court's shadow docket, which is the Supreme Court can protect those rulings from below that uh, I think this is what it will do sadly, but it'll protect those rulings from below that take a quite uh, assertive approach to the major questions doctrine, and maybe it will issue interim orders about rulings that don't take an adequately assertive approach under the major questions doctrine. So it seems to me that this isn't just about the Supreme Court at all. It's about the lower courts, as Jonathan was suggesting, and that the ease of doing this analysis, if what you look for is the major question and then the statutory question almost follows after that uh, that that's really important and, and I think dangerous. Whether this is a substantial stretch from previous cases, I mean, I've done a lot of parsing of these cases in an article some years ago, and I don't think we, anyone, including me, has the appetite for that right at this moment. But I will say I don't think the chief justice gets that history correct at all. I think the major questions doctrine was born as a kind of aside, like, yeah, we've sort of decided this case already, but another thing we don't like about what the agency did, it was kind of a curly cue or something added on the end of a completed opinion. It wasn't anything like a doctrine. It was like a a sentence, A, a, a little extra point. But now it's blossomed into not only this uh, uh, freestanding doctrine, um, this clear statement rule that operates from the beginning, and this this real ouster not only of the agency's authority, but of Congress's authority. So again, it, it was sort of born in an era when um, the court still actually seemed to follow the Chevron um, doctrine of deference to agencies' interpretations. and And the major question's idea was if if, if it was anything more than a decorative curlicue, it was a way to get out of Chevron deference um, or to avoid Chevron deference. But now it's really taking aim at saying Congress needs to be clear enough. And if it's not clear enough, there just isn't authority under the statute. Deference, no deference, whatever the agency said, there isn't any authority under the statute. And if I may, I'd just like to point out what I think is very odd about the chief justice's opinion and I think is telling, which is he goes through these this few paragraphs trying to establish that this has been with us for a long time and this is nothing new. In that sequence, he doesn't mention his own major question's opinion, which is King versus Burwell. He just doesn't mention it. I don't know if his conservative colleagues don't like him mentioning King versus Burwell, but it's a major absence from that catalog of cases. And it struck me that one thing that King versus Burwell did do, at the end of the day, the federal government got its subsidies for the federal exchanges. The taxpayers got their tax credits, federal tax credits, on the federal exchanges. That is the way that the agency had understood the law going in, survived, even though the court said the statute was ambiguous and even though the court said it was a major question. So think about that. In West Virginia, wouldn't that mean if you applied that same rule that you say, well, we're going to look at the statute and the statute may well, at the end of the day, we may well think that um, the authority of EPA remains. We're just not going to defer to them. And so it strikes me that the failure to cite King versus Burwell avoids the question of those differences where in King versus Burwell, the statutory structure and the, and the agency structure remain, or in this one, the major questions idea is enough to just throw out the whole thing.
0: Thank you very much for that and for reminding us of the chief's opinion in King versus Burwell, which of course was the six to three decision from 2015, interpreting provisions of the Affordable Care Act, and as you say, upholding as consistent with the statute, the outlay of of premium tax credits uh, to people in the states. Um, Jonathan, let us dig into the statutory analysis. The core of the Chief Justice's opinion um, is that, as he puts it, the only interpretive question before us and the only one we answer is whether the, quote, best system of emissions reduction, end quote, identified by the EPA and the Clean Power Plant, was within the authority granted to the agency in section 111D of the Clean Air Act. So everything turns on the meaning of these words, the best system of emissions reduction. Tell us about the significance of those words and why the chief justice and the court conclude that they don't authorize the Obama generation shifting plan at issue in this case.
1: Okay. um, And and to to explain that, it probably is worth saying a little bit about the way the statute operates. So, Um, Section 111 of the Clean Air Act uh, provides for, um, or its primary purpose is to provide for a new source performance standard, so standards for new sources. And then once, so facilities that are being constructed or that are modified and um, what sorts of pollution control they have to adopt when they do that. And then once you have a standard for new sources, um, a a separate provision of Section 111 uh, requires the EPA to then come up with uh, standards for the pre-existing sources. And this bifurcation between new sources and existing sources is something that's common in, in environmental law. It's common in the Clean Air Act. It basically embodies this idea that um, of grandfathering that it's often easier to, ins- to adopt pollution controls when you are building the facility in the first place than to try and retrofit them, or that at least in some circumstances, um, it is easier and more cost-effective to to design a facility to be less polluting in the first place than to uh, take a facility and try and uh, retrofit it or, or rebuild it. And in setting um, the standard of reduction that a given sector must reach um, under Section 111, um, the agency determines what the best system of emission reduction is and does that to identify the degree of emission reductions that are required. Uh, And so the question here really is in deciding how much can power plants reduce their emissions of greenhouse gases, um, what is the best way of doing that? um, That is adequately demonstrated, which the which the statute requires, also requires considering cost and and grid reliability and some things like that. Uh, and traditionally, um, that has been done by looking at more or less what you can do at the facility. We often use the the catchphrases inside the fence line, outside the fence line. Those are handy phrases. They're not quite precise, but they, they get to the basic idea that we've generally figured out what can you do within the fence line of the facility and what's the best adequately demonstrated way of reducing emissions and then that's the target. That's the, the, the degree of reductions that will be necessary. Well, if we're talking about greenhouse gas emissions which come from power production, we recognize there are lots of ways you can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and one would be just to generate less power. Um, or to generate less power from the types of sources that are at issue here, coal-fired power plants or gas-fired power plants. And so then the question is, well, where do you draw that line between what's permissible within the idea of source-specific emission standards versus what will just achieve the goal? Um, And if you go back and look at the history of the Clean Power Plan, there was a lot of debate, a a lot of recognition about that there is a line somewhere there that that has to be drawn. Um, And the chief justice concludes that uh, using generation shifting, using the idea that uh, the utility that owns the power plant could shift production to a gas plant or to wind or solar or or could purchase credits from some other power generator that is producing power in a less carbon-intensive way, that, that the chief justice concludes that that is beyond the bounds of what a best system of emission reduction is. I'm being careful in the way I describe it, because at the end of the opinion, the chief justice goes out of his way to say, we're only deciding that this is impermissible. We're not telling you what else might be permissible. Um, And, you know, why he did that, I don't know. Um, I suspect it was a way to try and narrow the opinion or to make sure that the court didn't say something about the Clean Air Act um, that created a problem that the court wasn't aware of because it is a complicated statute. Um, As we've already talked about, the primary basis that the chief gave for this was, well best system of emission reduction has always been understood to involve things that you do at the facility or that, or that the facility does. It's qualitatively different to talk about using the facility less and shifting generation to somewhere else, hence a major question. Um, the chief doesn't get into other uh, aspects of the statute that I think would reinforce his conclusion. Um, there, there are pages and pages in the briefs in this case that talk about other language in Section 111, other language in the statute that indicates that these provisions were understood as provisions that authorize emission controls that can be done at the source and by the source. Um, there's reasonable debate about, about how determinative that language is, but it is, as I have noted before, it is fair to criticize the Chief Justice for not engaging in that language, and as a consequence, the dissent um, jumps on that. Uh, I mean, Justice Kagan writes a a very powerful dissent um, that I think takes advantage of the fact that the Chief Justice does not engage in the sort of broad textual reading of all of the relevant statutory provisions that we are usually told to do. Um, And instead says, we have this one phrase, we can interpret it the traditional way, the way the EPA usually has, or we can allow EPA to interpret it in this new way. That would be a big deal. We don't see any evidence that Congress meant that EPA could do it this latter way. So we're going to assume they can't. That is, in effect, kind of what the chief does. Um... As I've already said, I think he gets to the right place, but you can tell that I'm not overly satisfied
0: with the way he got there. Uh, Lisa, Justice Kagan says in her dissent, Some years ago, I remarked that we're all textualists now. It seems I was wrong. The current court is textualist only when being so suits it. Tell us why Justice Kagan concludes the statutory text. Covers the EPA's generation shifting program and, and why she thinks that the chief justice is being, as she calls it, result oriented.
2: Well, I think she does a very um, persuasive analysis of the language that supports EPA's ruling. Of the statute. On the other hand, she doesn't go even possibly into as much detail as even she could have, in the sense that she was writing a, a dissent, an opinion that itself didn't go into the uh, language very much. But I think that her her point about textualism was that this, the justices, especially the conservative justices, have always told us it's the text and nothing but the text. And here you have a very strange situation where the court is taking a principle that's not mm-hmm. in any statute. It's not in the Constitution. We can talk about non-delegation later if, if you want to, but it's not something that is that comes from the statute in question. And it's importing that into the question about what the statute means. So it's completely outside the text of the statute. And that's the main work done in this opinion, is to say that that's the interpretive principle, and then to look at why this case falls into that interpretive principle. If you look at it, I'm looking at the opinion. It's like three pages of statutory analysis when you get down to the bottom of it. It's 31 pages of analysis, but only a few pages, basically three quick points at the end about why the statute isn't clear enough. And so I think Justice Kagan takes a more careful look at the statute, a more careful look at the breadth of the word system, because, of course, the central language at issue here is the best system of emissions reduction, which is very um, broad language, language that not that long ago we would have think, thought uh, actually gave discretion to the agency to um, make judgments about what fell within that um, within that language. So I think she's right in the sense that she says that the, the majority has found a get out of text-free card in the major questions doctrine. Again, you can look, just take a quick look, eyeball the statute, see an important problem, and not look much further. Once, remember, once a case gets to the Supreme Court especially, Everybody's had eyes on it and everybody can make that statute either blurry or clear as they, as their lawyerly talents can afford. And, and, and so that a lot of work is done in that first part of saying it has to be so clear and clear enough for these justices to be able to hear it, actually. So I think she has it right on that.
0: Uh, Jonathan, what what's your uh, response to Justice Kagan's point, which Lisa's also made, that statutory language is malleable, and the court here, as Justice Kagan said, is using the a uh, get out of text free card in service of a broader goal to prevent agencies from doing important work, even though that's what Congress directed.
1: Well, I mean, I I think that that Kagan's critique that the court does seem to be taking a shortcut to avoid engaging with the full text is fair and i think it relieves her of engaging with some of the other portions of the text that she doesn't engage with either and i think as, as lisa noted she's writing in the dissent she's responding to the majority the majority doesn't go there why waste her time going where the majority doesn't force her to go i i, I think that's reasonable um, You know, I so I think as a critique of the way this opinion was written, um, I think it's it's fair because the the opinion didn't do the work. Now, as I mentioned before, I think there is a lot of other there's a lot of other text in the statute, which does make fairly clear that um, standards of performance for existing sources were standards for those sources, um, that they were not about. Um, regulating the electricity grid. They were about regulating specific facilities, specific plants, and that the best system of emission reduction um, was about a system that can be applied at a plant or, or put into place by a plant, not something that we can do on a a more global level, and that every time Congress has wanted to do something on a more global level, uh, Congress has expressly done so, as it did in the acid rain program, as it did with stratospheric ozone depletion, uh, the phase out where that involved the trading scheme and so on. So I think there are actually, there are responses to Justice Kagan's uh, critique. Um, What I have a hard time suggesting is that the chief actually made them. You know, I don't know if that was because it was the end of the term and they were trying to get this opinion out. And as we all know, this was a very busy term. And if you include the administrative matters and the shadow docket and the leak and so on, the chief justice clearly had a lot on his plate. So maybe this is a consequence of rushing the opinion. I don't know. I will say um, I, had, I had a similar feeling of dissatisfaction with the um, OSHA decision involving the OSHA uh, COVID policy, where again, I think a very strong text-based argument in support of the same conclusion could have been made. And where the major questions doctrine would have merely been the the cherry on top, it would have been the exclamation point, it would have been the, this confirms our reading. Um, And instead, in that case, the court took a shortcut. I I see the same thing here. Um, And so... I don't find Kagan's critique convincing on outcome because I think she ignores other sources of statutory meaning that are relevant, um, that are part of the context of the phrase best system of emission reduction. But she wasn't forced to make those arguments because unfortunately the majority, uh, in my view, didn't didn't do the full work that I think we would have benefited from of, of showing how um, this, is, this, this is a common sense opinion in, in terms of how it construes EPA's authority, even if it means we have to wait for Congress to act to adopt what what would be a fairly commonsensical way of
0: reducing emissions, greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. Lisa, you are a nationally recognized expert on Congress's authorization for the use of emission trading program. In fact, Chief Justice Roberts's majority opinion cites one of your articles uh, from two thousand four on behalf of the proposition that the acid rain program was the nation's first ever emissions trading program. What's actually going on here? If you just step back and explain to our listeners what Congress was trying to achieve in the course of the 90s and 2000s, why does that lead you to conclude that Congress did in fact intend to authorize the program at issue here?
2: Well, I have to say I I am persuaded. I said that I was persuaded by Justice Kagan's arguments. On the other hand, I think the statute is not as, as clear as one might like. Um, I did think back when I wrote the article, that article was written when uh, the administration of George W. Bush um, wanted to regulate uh, mercury emissions from power plants, We're always with power plants, um, and wanted to do so through a trading program which was, came as a surprise to many people because it was actually at that time under legal obligation to regulate uh, mercury as a hazardous air pollutant, which would have um, brought with it very stringent controls. And people, including me, were, were um, quite concerned about allowing pollution trading in a toxic pollutant like mercury. So we looked at this in that article, Rena Steinzer and I looked at the statute. And what I found, as I said in the article with Rena, was that the statute was kind of a jumble, that there were signs in both directions about what Congress was trying to achieve in that program. And so that it's true that Congress in 1990, when it enacted a trading program for sulfur dioxide, it didn't say anything about trading under Section 111. That's absolutely true. And I think it is fair to say that there are statutory signals pointing in both directions on, um, on the, the, the breadth of section 111. By the same token, the, at that time, it didn't feel to me like the statutory arguments had been made in the kind of full dress way they were in West Virginia. And at that point, it just seemed more persuasive to argue that when the EPA sat down and made a regulation, that explained the basis for it. Explained exactly why it was doing it. That that made some sense. So I I did think the statute was a bit of a jumble. I think it still is a bit of a jumble. And I think, uh, but I also think that uh, at the end of the day, EPA did a pretty good job of uh, explaining itself in this in the Clean Power Plan. I also think more, I know I keep coming back to this, but I think this really is the top line sort of takeaway from West Virginia, is I I really think that this case is different, not because the EPA lost on a particular section of the Clean Air Act, lost a particular power under a particular section of the Clean Air Act, um, because I think that that statutory interpretation to me is almost always debatable but it's important because of this thumb on the scales that the Supreme Court has put on uh, statutory limits that precedes close statutory analysis is outside any statutory text, and I think is only imperfectly connected to the Constitution. One thing we haven't talked about is that Justice Chief Justice Roberts says, one, he says the major questions doctrine comes from an assumption, a presumption which is a good word for it. Work has two different meanings: a presumption that Congress means to to legislate clearly on major questions. They don't cite any authority for that idea that that's what Congress does and that's how Congress behaves. They do cite an opinion by Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit for that kind of presumption. So there's this idea. It strikes me as falsely respectful. Oh, we think that Congress would want this, or this is the way they behave. There's no evidence of that. You take that away and what you have is a bare reference by Chief Justice Roberts to separation of powers principles. That's all he says. No citations to cases, just separation of powers principles. It can't be anything but non-delegation that he's citing to. I don't see any other possible constitutional limit that he's he's talking about. And I see um, Jonathan making a face, so maybe Jonathan sees one. But to me, I, I don't see it. And it's so clear to me from earlier cases talking about non-delegation that Chief Justice Roberts is on all fours with Chief Justice Gorsuch,
0: who links the two quite closely. We have the benefit of uh, Zoom for this recording. And, and now our We the People listeners can find out why Jonathan was uh, was objecting. Uh, Jonathan, Lisa just made a really clear argument. She said the statute is a jumble, as many statues are. The EPA made a plausible case, but the court has put its thumb on the scales by adopting a major questions doctrine. And this thumb on the scales, Lisa says, is not rooted in the Constitution. And the only constitutional root is another doctrine. She called it the non-delegation doctrine, which Justice Gorsuch has embraced openly, but Chief Justice Roberts declines openly to embrace in this case. Unpack that powerful argument and and tell us your response. Sure. So I I
1: I think you know, certainly, Lisa, is absolutely correct that Justice Gorsuch, and at least in this case, Justice Alito, uh, think that the non-delegation doctrine is doing work in the background and should be doing work in the background. Uh, I'm not convinced that um, the other justices in the majority, with the possible exception of Justice Thomas, necessarily share that view. I think the separation of powers principle that underlies the chief justice method is, is something, I, I guess, a bit more basic. Uh, and something the Supreme Court has said many, many times, which is, federal administrative agencies only have that power that Congress has given to them. They have no inherent power. They are creatures of Congress. They are created by Congress. They are authorized by Congress. They only have the power and responsibility that Congress gave them. Congress is the principal, they are the agent. And the statute in question is the, the instrument that provides the instruction and the authority for that agent to act. And in those sorts of relationships, which we do know, you know, we do know the founders thought of many questions in these sorts of terms. Joseph Story wrote one of the more important uh, uh, treatises on agency law. Um, we understand that there are general ways in which one reads a document that is conveying authority, that is delegating power and, and imposing responsibility. And that is that We recognize that details will need to be filled in by the agent, because not everything can be foreseen, not everything will be precise. But we also recognize that authority is given for a particular reason, to achieve a particular goal, and that it is extremely rare for a blank check to be written or given. Um, So apart from Justice Gorsuch's concern, which is broad authority, in his view, can't be given... That's the non-delegation doctrine idea, the idea that, that Congress could not give EPA broad authority. What the chief is saying is just from a basic understanding of the way legislatures give power to agencies that would otherwise have no power, our baseline is no power. So we are looking for what power was actually given. And I think what follows from that, and admittedly the chief does not make this as explicit in his opinion as I wish he had. What follows from that is that if we have a jumble, we, we, we rest on our default. Our baseline does the work. That we expect authority to be given clearly, and the broader the authority, the more extreme the authority, the more conspicuous the authority, the clearer we expect that delegation to be. That's a basic underlying principle of the way or, or, or way of thinking about the way principles give authority to agents. Um, and again, if, you know, if, if I were if I were, had been helping the chief with the opinion and we were going to cite Lisa's great article, um, we would have we would have cited the jumble language and we said, aha, a jumble. Well, if it's a jumble, we need to err on the side of the power not being transferred because the power began with Congress, but Congress is free to correct us, as Congress often does when the court gets things wrong. Um, while the chief did not say that explicitly, I do think that is the way to understand the the principle that's doing the work and, and the role that separation of powers is playing in the chief justice's analysis, as opposed to Justice Gorsuch's opinion where it's not a a presumption about how one interprets instruments that convey power, it is rather there is this constitutional limit in the background, and we have to narrow our interpretation of the statute so as to stay far away from that constitutional limit. That latter approach, the use of the non-delegation doctrine as a way of of imposing a, a major questions as a as a constitutional avoidance clear statement rule that's that's what chief justice gorsuch or that's right that's what justice gorsuch is doing and i think the reason he wrote separately is because he didn't see that in the chief justice's opinion and he wanted to be sure that that was on the table as well
0: lisa in an opinion called uh, gundy from 2019 justice kagan Said that uh, if Justice Gorsuch's view of the non delegation doctrine were adopted, it would mean the end of the administrative state. Do you believe that there may not be a majority for Justice Gorsuch's view? And, and do you agree with Justice Kagan that it would mean the end of the administrative state?
2: I think that there is a majority for Justice Gorsuch's view. I just don't think they told us about it in this case. Chief Justice Roberts joined Justice Gorsuch's opinion in Gundy, which argued for a very um, aggressive approach to non-delegation, argued for enforcing it for the um, first time in, in you know, almost 100 years. And Chief Justice Roberts joined it in full. In fact, he, I imagine he assigned that opinion to Justice Gorsuch, right? Justice Thomas joined that opinion. Justice Kavanaugh sort of indicated that he was on board in a separate statement. Justice Alito has now joined Justice Gorsuch's opinion. Mm-hmm. I think I've named five. There's a majority, I think, for revitalizing the non-delegation doctrine, and my take on West Virginia is that they're picking the major questions doctrine as a way of doing that. I don't think I understand what Jonathan is saying about principal-agent law. I, I don't get that from the single statement separation of powers principles. I don't get that they're actually adopting hook, line, and sinker—the kind of to me um, surprising theory that the separation of powers in the United States is based on private principal-agent theory um and so I think they are talking about non-delegation. Indeed, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts inciting Justice Kavanaugh's opinion on a presumption that Congress speaks clearly on major questions, cites an opinion that in that same paragraph is talking about the non-delegation doctrine. So it is in the background, but like so many things, the Supreme Court did this term in administrative law, not in constitutional law, but in administrative law and the attending constitutional principles around it they're 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 very quiet. They're they're not telling us what they're up to. I think what they're up to is reviving the non-delegation doctrine and I think they should tell us. I think what they've been up to is killing Chevron. I think they should tell us that. And as for reviving the non-delegation principle, the court says the majority says, well, Congress can have to one of two things. It can either make the major policy tr- decisions itself or it can very clearly authorize the agency to regulate in the way that um, the agency uh, is asserting authority to do. Well, I just don't think that's a choice. I think if Congress said to the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, you know what, you can either do a full-on restructuring of the electricity industry, or you can do little refinements at the power plants, little efficiency improvements, your choice, right? Your choice. The the nature of the electricity industry turns on it, and it's your choice. If they said that clearly, as clearly as the court wants in West Virginia versus EPA, I think they would then say, oh, you've passed the major questions idea. You've been clear enough, but it's unconstitutional.
0: Jonathan, do you agree or not that this is just a halfway point to uh, an eventual embrace by the court of the non-delegation doctrine? And and do you agree with Justice Kagan that that would— mean the end of or serious constraints on the administrative state? And what do you think of Justice Kagan's memorable final sentence in her opinion? In this EPA case, the court appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy, I cannot think of many things more frightening.
1: Well, in terms of what what the court um, will, would do in, in that hypothetical, um, I don't share Lisa's intuition. Um, I think that Uh, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Alito, and Justice Thomas probably would. Um, I'm not sure about the rest. I think that Justice Kavanaugh's separate statements— Um, his identification of what he would characterize as the major powers doctrine as a variant of major questions um, really isn't a full non-delegation doctrine. And I think that um, one reason I'm not sure there are five votes for reviving the non-delegation doctrine uh, is the same reason that folks like the late uh, Justice Antonin Scalia never fully embraced it is because the line drawing problem is very difficult. And in one of the reasons the court appears to have backed away from enforcing the non-delegation doctrine is figuring out what the line between a permissible and impermissible delegation is, is difficult. Whereas um, adopting a, a rule of statutory interpretation where the broader the authority the agency wishes to uh, exercise, the clearer the indication that it has that authority must be, is something that I think is much more administrable uh, and more in line with uh, the outcome Uh, that we see in this case. In terms of whether or not it would mean the end of the administrative state, it really depends on how Congress acts. Um, You know, when Congress enacts broad regulatory legislation, Congress is not itself required to come up with all the details of that legislation. In fact, that's not what happens. Um, Most of the 1990 Clean Air Act uh, was written in the executive branch, um, not in the the Congress. Congress revised it and amended it. But most of the key proposals in the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments, the largest, most comprehensive environmental law, uh, ever enacted in our nation's history um, were drafted either at EPA uh, or in the White House or some combination thereof, and then given to Congress, and then Congress again made some did some fine tuning, but relied upon the expertise within the executive branch for that. Um, there is empirical work by um, by Chris Walker and, and some others po- showing that that in fact sort of that sort of thing happens more and more that that Congress relies upon agency expertise in writing statutes. And so if if we were to have that, uh, if we were to have the practice that used to be common of Congress revisiting statutes on a regular basis, reauthorizing statutes on a regular basis, a lot of these problems would go away. Um, now, is Congress going to do that? <laughs> Not predicting that at all. Um, uh, Congress got out of the habit of reauthorizing statutes, and, and I've done some other work um, with Chris Walker on on how to induce Congress to return to the practice of regularly reauthorizing statutes. But I think that's the way to have either an aggressive major questions doctrine or even a non-delegation doctrine without hamstringing the administrative state is for Congress to do what Congress is supposed to do. Um, and that would require regular reauthorization of statutes, that would require reinvigorating legislative expertise that used to exist in things like the Office of Technology Assessment. Um, and I do think it's fair to say to, to folks on the right who um, uh, support non, the non-delegation doctrine or the major questions doctrine and the like whether or not they're willing to take the step of reinvigorating congressional capacity and finding ways of forcing Congress to the table more often. Um, but those possibilities are there. Um, it is not as if the only way to have regulation is to let ag- give agencies free reign to reconceptualize the scope of their own powers
0: on, on a regular basis. Um, there there are alternatives. Lisa, what do you make of Justice Kagan's final sentence? I cannot think of many things more frightening than for the court to appoint itself instead of Congress or the expert agency the decision maker on climate policy. And what do you make of Jonathan's notion that if the Congress were to do what it's supposed to do, we we wouldn't have judges making climate change policy?
2: Well, I, I think that she is um, – I'm with her in being frightened at the prospect of the Supreme Court running t- climate policy and uh, securities policy and health policy and occupational safety policy and on down the line as it – has started to do and will do under this theory of interpretation. It's They're not experts in these fields. They have a different sensibility, different disciplinary focus, um, different staffs, different ways of being. The Supreme Court doesn't tell us why it's doing what it's doing. Agencies have to explain themselves and have public processes. It's just, I don't want the Supreme Court to run climate or environmental policy or any other agency's policies. I I will say, when I was writing the briefs in Massachusetts versus EPA, there was a question about whether we would um, ask the court to sort of nudge them into saying that climate... Um, change was happening and that it was caused by man-made greenhouse gases. And it struck me that we actually didn't want the Supreme Court to say that, because that would be to suggest that that's the Supreme Court's job is to make a judgment like that. And that struck me, even at the time we were writing the briefs in 2006, as very dangerous. So I'm with Justice Kagan on that. I, I'm actually not with Jonathan, about Congress, I think I I would welcome Congress getting up on its feet again. I will say the Supreme Court has had a hand in hampering them with money and politics and the Voting Rights Act, and they have distorted the political system in this country in a way that I think has not helped the dysfunctional situation in Washington. But by the same token, why should, in a way, why should it be either or rather than both and? yes, I think Congress should be more active now. That would be wonderful. I would welcome that. On the other hand, we have a lot of statutes on the books that were written with great care by people who actually knew what they were doing and looked far enough into the future to say that they wanted problems to be taken on, even if they emerged after they had acted. Those problems are, those statutes are still on the books and they had, could be used to address problems right now without fresh legislation. Why does it have to be an either-or choice? And what the Supreme Court is making it right now is an either-or choice. You can't use the old statutes because, uh, you know, you're, you're doing something new under them. And so you have to recur to Congress. Right now, we could be starting on problems, really digging into problems that we have based on this legislation. And I'll just say in closing, one of the things that the Supreme Court's decision makes clear is that an agency can't expand authority under a statute, but it can shrink it. It can shrink it by not acting on a problem. It doesn't matter why it hasn't acted. Maybe it doesn't have the resources. Maybe the problem hadn't emerged with enough gravity. Maybe it tried other regulatory strategies first. But if it doesn't use that authority for some period of time, we don't know how long, then it loses that authority. And so actually, in the Supreme Court's judgment, in my view of what the court has done, is it allows an agency's judgment about statutory meaning to control. It's just only when it shrinks authority and not with it when it expands it. And I think that has a very dangerous uh, and I'll say partisan asymmetry to it.
0: It's time for closing thoughts in this important discussion. Uh, Jonathan, first ones are to you. Why is the West Virginia versus EPA case important, and what should our listeners think about it? The
1: case of West Virginia versus EPA is important on several grounds. I'll give three. First, uh, it's important because it reaffirms the principle that agencies only have that authority uh, that Congress gave them. Um, the legislative branch is the source of an agency's th- authority to regulate, uh, and an agency that can't identify the having been given authority, uh, doesn't have the authority to regulate. That's an important principle. West Virginia versus EPA reaffirms that principle. Uh, it's important uh, as, as a practical matter in that uh, it, it it limits the ability of the EPA uh, to take action on climate change. Uh, and um, it, that is certainly important because climate change is important. And uh, finding a way, effective ways of dealing with the problem of climate change uh, is important. And that uh, EPA has Um, a set of hours removed from its quiver, uh, certainly significant. It's also important because it uh, puts pressure on Congress. And I hope that's not just a, a normative judgment, but but a practical consequence as well. Um, There are significant problems uh, out there. Uh, There are significant environmental problems that were not conceived of, thought about, or focused upon when our major environmental statutes were last revised. Uh, And in our system of government, the legislature should be taking the lead in making sure that agencies uh, have the tools that are needed to address those problems. Um, And for us as citizens and voters, uh, recognizing that that uh, that is Congress's job and that Congress needs to step up to that plate uh, is important as well. And so that's another reason why this
0: decision is important. Lisa, the last words are to you. Please tell our listeners why the EPA decision is important and why they should care about
2: it. A few years ago, Chief Justice Roberts wrote a dissent in in a case in which he um, decried the power of the administrative state, and he talked about the administrative state reaching into every nook and cranny of American life. I think the Supreme Court now reaches into every nook and cranny of American life, and obviously in the in the in the ways that we all know about with respect to the the gun rights and reproductive rights, and the large marquee issues the court talked about this term. But in this case, in West Virginia, The court is threatening to throw into chaos regulatory programs that benefit many, many people and could benefit even more, and to throw them into a kind of legal limbo where we won't know what happens with those programs until the Supreme Court favors us with its opinion about whether they address problems too important to be addressed. Without fresh legislation. So, for example, the other day, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in the South, the Federal Court of Appeals in the South, um, heard arguments on the legality of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Immigration Program. And right after this case, West Virginia, came down, the Attorney General of Texas sent a letter to the court saying, you need to see this opinion, West Virginia, because it supports our argument that DACA is illegal. This is a major question on immigration that the agency has answered without clear enough statutory authority. So this major question doctrine isn't just coming for the EPA. It's coming for for any agency in the federal government that is trying to do important works and for Congress when it gets back to its feet again and tries to address our problems.
0: Thank you so much, Jonathan Adler and Lisa Hinderling, for a thoughtful, deep, and significant discussion on the West Virginia versus EPA case. Jonathan, Lisa, it's always wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Melody Rowell and engineered by Dave Stotz. Research was provided by Bishan Chowdhury, Elliot Peck, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple. Recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional education and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on your generosity, dear We the People friends. These are such important times for constitutional education, and it is so meaningful for us to learn together as part of the NCC's nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership and give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.